Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and in this very special episode of I'm the Gun, I'm test driving a new feature called I'm the Gun's Mystery Theater, in which I'll recap the adventures of the brilliant hard-boiled gumshoe Ms. Michael Tree, created and owned, I'd like to add, by mystery writer Max Allen Collins and artist Terry Beatty. But that's not what makes this episode special. What makes it special is a very special guest. I'm so very pleased to welcome Professor Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasts to talk a little Ms. Tree. Professor, how are you? Very good. Let's do it. All right. Because what I like about you, Mark, well, many things, but I like the fact that you are introducing this new feature. Uh-huh. I don't know if you realize it. This is the last issue <laughs> featuring mystery. I mean, are you going to just then work backwards? Is that the plan? I mean, look, I'm not here to criticize. You're not one of my students. <laughs> I'm really not here to judge. Well, we do things kind of uh, bass backwards here on the on I'm the Gun, so. <laughs> I mean, it's a mystery. We can start at the end and work our way to the beginning. It should work. It's random mystery theater. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is in this first or possibly last <laughs> mystery theater. <laughs> it's part of a very special crossover with Relatively Geeky, specifically the Quarterbin podcast. I joined, will join will someday join <laughs> Professor Allen on episode 76 of QBP, which we covered the penultimate issue of Mystery Quarterly. This is a comic published by DC Comics, which followed up on uh, Mystery's long-running 50-issue title that was published by a string of independents, including Eclipse, Aardvark Vanaheim, and Renegade Press. Now, this issue number 10... All of the big ones. All of the big ones. <laughs> Now, this issue happens to be, at least to date, I believe, sadly, Ms. Tree's final appearance in the comic book. So what do you say? Should we dive right into this story? Let's do it. All right. So Ms. Tree special number 10, cover dated 1993. At this point, uh, the title is basically an annual. The story here is a little different from previous Ms. Tree stories I've read. It's called To Live and Die in Vietnam. And it's by the remarkably consistent creative team of writer Max Allen Collins, artist Terry Beatty, also credited here as co-creators, Gary Cato on letters, Eric Kekelhofer, don't recognize that name as the colorist, and Mike Gold is the editor. Uh, Randy Duberk painted the cover. Uh, what do you think about the cover of number 10, Professor? It's, and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's dark. Yeah. There's a lot of black space and and some some blue and then you get a of a strip down the side of a uh, like photorealistic of a picture of a soldier. So you do get an idea that this is not this n- standard no. mystery yeah. no- noirish PI thriller. Yeah. This I is going to be something different. I agree. And uh Randy DeBurk did the cover to the previous issue, um, number nine, and it looked totally different from this, a totally different right. style. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer the issue that covered issue number 10. As and, do I. Yeah, that strip, that strip uh, with the soldier in it, kind of, it makes me think of the Vertigo design. Oh, how, okay, how right. Vertigo titles had that strip along the, uh, the left side there. Um, and I know this sort of mature line was uh, a precursor to that sort of tale. Just made me think of that. Uh, so this issue opens up with a post-traumatic stress dream. 
experienced by Roger Fremont, a partner in Ms. Tree's investigation agency. In his dream, Roger is back in Vietnam. Uh, the incident he's dreaming about has racked Roger with guilt for 20 years. Under heavy fire from a charging group of Viet Cong, a small group of three soldiers, including Roger, someone named Victor Green, and the wounded Michael Tree, a future husband of Ms. Tree, attempt to rendezvous with an escape helicopter. As Victor lays down some cover fire, Roger loads in the bloody, possibly unconscious Michael into the chopper. When Roger attempts to go back for Victor, he's yanked into the copter by a member of the crew, and Victor's abandoned, machine guns ablaze. This dream causes Roger to sit bolt upright in bed. He reaches for a pack of smokes. He prefers Chester Gold's brand, which is a nod, of course, to Chester Gould, creator of Dick Tracy. <laughs> I did not catch that. Excellent. Max Collins, uh, he'd write the Dick Tracy strip for That's 15 right. years. That's uh, right. Yeah, prob- I, probably I, along with Road to Perdition. Mm. Probably the, the Dick Tracy strip is probably the probably the two things that he's known best for. Mm. Sort of in, in, in common common parlance. I have not read one panel of Dick Tracy. <laughs> have you? Probably not. <laughs> I'm sure it's really good. Uh, but it's plain here that Roger feels uh, pretty bad about abandoning his buddy back in now. Next morning, we see Ms. Tree taking her morning coffee in uh, her Chicago apartment. She bemoans to herself the troubles of the day, taxes, AIDS, gangs. But as she sips and gazes at her infant daughter, Melody, being held by Michael's younger sister, Angie, she feels pretty good about her own life. She's grateful for having the two of them in her life, especially considering the troubles that they had recently had. For more information about those troubles... <laughs> Listen I can to recommend episode 76, the Quarterman Podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can recommend a great podcast that covers that. <laughs> Check it out. So everything's right with Ms. Tree's world, which uh, is kind of an unusual spot for her to be in, considering her history. And it but lasts even shorter than it did last issue. <laughs> yes, it does. Because as soon as she enters her office, <laughs> she witnesses the tail end of a shouting match between Roger Fremont and the firm's other partner, Dan Green. Ms. Tree gets in between the men, and Dan storms out of the office, telling Roger he should mind his own damn business. She gets in between the men, and she is taller than both of them. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, that may be perspective, but I don't think so. No, I think, I think, right. I think she's a... Yep, yep. So, she's, uh, Ms. Tree's surprised to see Roger light up one of, her, one of his Chester Golds, and as he proceeds to tell her about the uh, dreams he's been having... Now, Roger rarely smokes, and uh, he's rarely opened up about his experiences in Nam. so Ms. Tree's had to kind of piece together the story herself over time. The Victor Green that was left behind, MIA, presumed dead, was actually, believe it or not, Dan Green's older brother. And this incident, or at least its result, was the cause of the, the current tension between these co-workers. Dan has apparently, according to Roger, been obsessed with his brother's memory. Roger's concerned by the fact that Dan's been pouring most of his savings into what he calls the MIA POW industry. There are apparently organizations who've been taking advantage of distraught families of American um, MIAs. And for a fee, they promise some information about the whereabouts of missing servicemen. Roger says these are, for the most part, scam artists. Um, Unfortunately, as informative as this conversation between Roger and Ms. Tree is, 
sort of lists, laundry list of facts and numbers seems a little yeah. forced mm-hmm. and uh, kind of preachy. Things like, and Roger said, there are still around 2,300 soldiers unaccounted for. And, Wait a minute, didn't I read something about the KGB, blah, blah, blah? Mm-hmm. Kind of grinds the story to a halt, <laughs> I found. Now, apparently Dan has come to grips with his brother's death, but he's now on the verge of falling victim to another scam. Uh, grave robbers wishing to sell back the supposed remains of American soldiers to their families. Dan's apparently been contacted by a local Chinatown scam artist who claims to have Victor's remains and wants five grand for them. Dan's broke. So I I, I kind of thought that was a nice touch mm-hmm. that sort of the first spate of scams he's gotten over <laughs> yes. or, 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 or hasn't or has finally moved past that, you know, so he's on to a, a second emotional stage. <laughs> the next. Cir- but also there's another then there's another set of scam artists waiting for him at that stage. Oof. And it was interesting to sort of hear about these things, which may be based on fact. I'm, I'm assuming they are considering the. the the, the dialogue. Mystery tracks down Dan at a bar and uh, listens to his argument for making the contact with the Vietnamese man who claims to have access to his brother's remains. Um, all Dan wants is a proper burial for his brother on American soil. Mystery agrees to give Dan the money, but there are going to be some conditions. So either that night or sometime later, Dan goes to meet his Vietnamese contact. Mystery is with him. In her business attire, that familiar dark trench coat that she wears on most of her adventures, uh, she lays out her conditions. First, she's to accompany to him to the meeting. And second, she reminds him to stay skeptical, a trait that has served him so well over time as a, as a PI. The meeting is to take place at a Vietnamese restaurant, and the contact, Nguyen Van Lam, dressed in a gouty purple suit. Wow. <laughs> I think the dragon tie... <laughs> the, the, that that dragony necktie I think that's pushing the stereotype just a little bit a touch too much <laughs> Ugh, yes I agree <laughs> <laughs> he wants to get right down to business though Lam explains his connection to the black market in Saigon as proof of his access to or possession of Victor Green's remains he pulls out Victor's dog tags so the five grand he says will start the process but uh, Dan and Mistry are a little surprised when Lam asks for an additional five grand once the body is delivered. So Mistry threatens Lam, and uh, this actually causes him to sweat. <laughs> but she's ready to go along with it as long as the goods can be delivered. When he's told their uh, down payment is in the car, Lam suggests that they, uh, they forget the meal and maybe they'll go right for the cash. And once outside, though, once outside the restaurant, Lam is shockingly gunned down by a red trench coat-wearing blonde woman who immediately flees the scene. Now, in a way, I thought this killer kind of resembles Ms. Tree in a negative image sort of way. Yeah. She's dressed in a red with the, with the lighter hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar hairstyle. Mm. Fortunately, Roger had followed uh, Dan and Michael and saw the woman run into a nearby apartment. Roger and uh, Ms. Tree find the apartment and uh, kick down the door and uh, pretty easily disarm the woman. (laughs) She seems familiar to the pair, and it turns out that she's Sally Lan, the first Vietnamese supermodel. Who would have thought? Apparently, uh, Lam had been blackmailing Sally as he had the negatives to a series of 
naughty pictures of the model taken before her career really took off. And even though Lom had said he'd sell Sally the negatives, her distrust, her trust issues caused her to take matters into her own hands. Now, the apartment they're in is Lom's, and uh, they find, along with evidence of a pretty intense gambling habit, the, the blackmailing negatives, which Roger, the gentleman that he is, he, he burns them up. Now, with the chances of recovering Victor Green's body, dealt a, a huge blow with the death of Lom, his tree thinks Sally herself may be of some use. And uh, kind of play loosey-goosey with the law here when the police show up. <laughs> yeah. They give them a somewhat accurate description about what happened. Um, well, except for the fact who actually killed <laughs> the victim. Yeah, but other than that one minor technicality, <laughs> other than that, they mostly were true. <laughs> The mystery takes Sally to her apartment and uh, begins to formulate a plan with Roger and Dan. They now intend to travel to Vietnam themselves, uh, using Sally, who's had her own associations with the Saigon underworld, as a fixer of sorts, to try to shake loose Victor's body. Sally's skeptical of this plan, knowing that Lam is nothing but a scam artist, but after Roger attests to the authenticity of Victor's dog tags, I guess there's the proof, meaning there's something to the story. Uh, and with the group's aid uh, in her finding herself pretty much scot-free after a cold-blooded murder, <laughs> <laughs> Sally agrees to help. <laughs> so how are we doing to, so far? To be fair, mm -hmm. she does owe the tree agency <laughs> a big one at this point. A huge one. <laughs> so what do you think of the story so far? I'm enjoying it, though. The this. Upcoming trip to Vietnam comes a little out of the blue, at least of the, the books that I've read so far. Yeah. But up to this point, the uh, the underworld connections, the even you know the the scam itself, that seems like a legitimate sort of PI investigation. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, yeah. you know the the gunning down in the middle of the street, the dealing with the police. You know that all seems. Legit. In character, that seems working. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the it's the international globe trotting we're about to do. <laughs> Up to now, on the rails. <laughs> Turn the page. <laughs> this is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The short box showcase. But then again, may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. 
This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right. So after the month it takes to line up all the visas and travel papers necessary, it's kind of funny how they cram that month in between two panels. <laughs> Ms. Tree, Roger, Dan, and Sally find themselves in the Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. On the way to the hotel that Sally has set up for them, uh, Ms. Tree is surprised to find what an open and friendly city Saigon is. After they freshen up, the first stop the group makes is a gentleman's club, one that Sally worked for years ago, run by her former pimp, a low-level mob associate named Von Ley. Sally tells Von Ley that her associates have been dealing with Lam, and uh, Roger mentions that Lam had been killed by some anonymous blackmailer. Uh, Von Ley explains that uh, Lam was one of the, at one time, a well-connected member of The Ring, this is an organization in the Saigon underworld that runs a number of illicit operations, drugs, prostitution, gambling, and black market transactions. Lamed apparently made a number of poor decisions and found himself using one too many of the services that he helped peddle. <laughs> this put him at odds with the, the ring's top leadership. He sold information to the ring's chief rivals in Saigon, the Chinese Triad Organization found himself a marked man, so this is when he fled to America where he met his fate several pages back. <laughs> With Lam dead and uh, Van Le in no position to help Ms. Tree and her crew directly, Van Le suggests speaking with the number one man in the triad, Johnny Wu. He can be found at a club called Bolero. Sally asks at the club to see Wu, and her celebrity is apparently just enough to draw Wu to their table. While they wait, a uh, band on stage is performing the monkeys I'm a Believer. <laughs> the, the bass player is wearing a wild dog t-shirt. <laughs> Which is, of course, a nice little Easter egg, because Wild Dog is another Collins Beatty creation published by DC. The hockey mask-wearing vigilante who operates in the Midwest. And when the Western-educated Wu greets the crew, he recognizes Sally, but also Ms. Tree, who's notoriety came to Wu's attention at whatever Texas university he attended. Wu tells them that uh, even in his position, he can't help get access to the government's bank of American soldiers' remains. The only man with such power is his chief rival, the leader of the Ring. He can, however, tell them the Ring's number one guy's present whereabouts as Wu has a meeting with him the very next day in the very hotel in which Mystery and company are staying. So this wild goose chase uh, continues. Now, now I will say, mm -hmm. it was about more than a decade before this, but in the late 70s, my family lived in Thailand. Mm. And in Thailand, the only you know, major Western-style hotel yeah. was the Intercontinental. Really? So it's possible <laughs> that in Saigon, 15 years later, mm -hmm. it's the same situation. That it is the 
upscale Western hotel. That yes. <laughs> so it may not be coincidence that everything is converging at the one place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I thought it was a little bit uh, too pat. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion on how the group should proceed. Dan thinks that they should do things pretty much the way that he and Ms. Tree have always done things. Just go up to the penthouse and uh, kick in the door and demand an audience with number one. Everyone else, including Miss Tree in this instance, prefers to take a more measured approach and also to get some rest, which I'm sure they all need. Before retiring, though, Miss Tree and uh, Roger have a, have a nice exchange. Michael comments on how well Roger and Dan have been getting along and how Roger has, in a way, become the big brother that the war denied Dan. Roger expresses that he still has concerns for Dan's hero worship of his brother, and he knows for a fact that uh, Victor wasn't perfect. So the next day, the group awaits word from Van Ley, whom Sally asked to attempt to arrange a meeting between them and the ring's number one. Van Ley arrives with some, some bad news, though. Originally, things looked promising. The meeting was to have taken place, but suddenly the invitation had been withdrawn. Their momentary frustration is broken when Ms. Tree spies a familiar face across the hotel dining room. It's Don Donnie. Muerta in town to do some business with the ring. Okay, now the coincidence meter. <laughs> coincidence dial just got dialed to 11. Okay. This, at this point. A little too much. A little too much. Okay. <laughs> Though I do like her, her introduction to him. Yeah. Says, Good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. And now the, uh. Now, the Muerta Karim family had been Ms. Tree's chief antagonist since her very earliest appearances, but uh, lately, due to various circumstances, including a, a new family leader in Donnie, and attempts to legitimize the family business, there's been something of a truce developing between the Trees and the Muertas. Still, though, Donnie almost chokes on his eggs when he, uh, when he sees Ms. Tree. <laughs> Now, desperate to meet this number one, Michael suggests that uh, she, Dan, and Roger stand in for Donnie's bodyguards when Huerta and the, the ringleader meet. And with some reluctance, Donnie agrees. At meeting time, Donnie, Dan, Roger, and Ms. Tree are brought to, into number one suite. They're frisked, asked to wait while the boss finishes his shower. Donnie privately expresses his concern over the impending war between the ring and the triad, just as number one emerges from the bathroom. When a mobster removes the towel from his head, Roger is shocked to see that the ring's number one is none other than Victor Green, Dan's brother, whose remains the crew is in Vietnam to collect. Were you shocked? On many levels. <laughs> I mean, first off, yes. I mean, it was, a, it's technically speaking, it's a great twist. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did not see it coming. Mm -hmm. um, there are some unbelievable aspects to it. <laughs> a few. <laughs> including this blonde-haired American guy running the Vietnamese <laughs> underworld. Yeah. <laughs> but the shock was... That seemed odd, but it delivered the shock that it was intended to. <laughs> well, Dan, his brother, obviously surprised, but uh, Victor seems less than thrilled that he's been found out. In fact, he claims that uh, Victor Green died a long time ago. Now he's 
just number one. Then he spills a bit about uh, how he managed to attain such a position when he was left pretty much to die fighting the Viet Cong 20 years ago. He ended up uh, maimed and captured. He survived, he says, by telling the enemy pretty much everything they wanted to know, including the fact that he'd already made some connections in Saigon, in the Saigon black market, dealing drugs to soldiers. The higher-ups in the Vietnamese camp saw the value of a well-connected American in their organization, and yeah, I guess so. okay. the way it's explained is over the years, Vic rose through the ranks of the ring until he found himself in control. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it would be a glass ceiling. I believe there would be some level that the American, the outsider, would could only get to. Yeah, I agree. Upper but... middle management, perhaps. But that was a great shock. <laughs> it, uh, absolutely. Uh, anyway, he's kept an eye on his little brother from a great distance, and uh, he's been well aware of his association with the notorious Ms. Tree. Michael explains that Lam, the blackmailer, was prepared to sell them his bones, Victor's bones. And Vic says that uh, that was only an act of revenge on Lam's part for being thrown out of the ring. He saw an ideal scam victim in the enemy's kid brother, Dan. So Vic admits that uh, when he found out it was his kid brother, among others, who requested a meeting through Von Ley, he that's when he pulled the plug on the meeting. The persistent crew found a way to do it, though, and when Vic finds out they learned his location from Johnny Wu, he freaks out a little bit, thinking the Americans had been sent as a distraction. And just then, crash! A couple of masked triad goons smash through the window. Guns ablazing. Finally, some action. Blam, 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 blam. There's even a crunch. There's I like that. <laughs> and a kablam. Just to, just to shake it up. A point of emphasis. Yeah. So Vic's bodyguards are killed, but Miss Tree manages to snag one of the dead mobster's weapons and uh, shoots one of the triads in the head. A couple more goons file in from the hallway, but the cavalry arrives and Von Ley and Salary brutally <laughs> kill a couple of triads. Wow, that is. <laughs> One with the knife across the neck. Yes, Vince just slices open the, the throat of one, and Sally shoots him through the back of the head. Point blank. <laughs> Dan makes a dive for a gun, exposing himself to some fire, but Vic jumps to protect his brother and gets a burst of Uzi fire to the chest for his trouble. The triad who shot Vic is immediately killed by a knife thrown by Von Ley. Uh, Donnie, who ducked for cover real quick, when the shootout starter reports that uh, all the enforcers from both sides have been killed, but Johnny Wu is nowhere to be seen. Dan vows to hunt him down, while Vic dies in his brother's arms. So, technically, Ms. Tree and the team's mission was a success. It's a total mess, <laughs> but technically successful. <laughs> he did bring his remains home. Yep, and in the last panel, Vic is brought home and he's given the military burial on U.S. soil that uh, his brother wanted. Debatable yeah. whether he deserved. <laughs> Actually, not really debatable. He did not deserve it. He did not deserve it. <laughs> so that's it. Uh, it's the last appearance of Mystery in a Comic. And my overall assessment of the comic, uh, I don't think she went out on, on a high note. <laughs> I, you know, I, 
it's it's I mean, I, I I've only read I think I think I've read six of the ten issues mm-hmm. of of this run the the special slash quarterly yep. title and this one was okay mm-hmm. I think if it had been in the middle somewhere where you could have just glossed over it you know if it had been number no issue seven or if there had been an issue 11 12 and 13 yes it wouldn't stand out as much but since it is the last one as you said it's just it's not it's it's I, not the best one to go out on i totally agree i totally it, agree had had nine ten been sort of flip-flopped right um i think you know hindsight's twenty twenty. yeah i think it was just a little too talky drawn out i think they could have eliminated a couple of those circles of goose chase there were hallmarks of a traditional, as we talked about, Ms. Tree story. You know, a personal revenge angle. That's in every story arc. <laughs> a couple of great shootouts. Yes, a couple of great shootouts. Good one at the end. Um, and also, I, I don't think Ms. Tree, she's not a she's not a good guest star. She was sort of buried, I think, in this issue. You know, she wasn't. This was not uh, Michael Tree centric. Um, and we talked about, you know, the fact I think she's just more successful on her home turf in Chicago, in the United States. And uh, we talked about the the odd coincidences that just seemed a little, uh, a little too much. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there's something about trying to give a character, you know, an epic sweep, you know, the international woman of mystery treatment. I guess but so. I don't know that it's the right character for that. Yeah, that's that's Modesty Blaze or uh, right, right, someone else. <laughs> yeah, I mean she's she's not the female James Bond. She's the female, the Mike Hammer. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. So yeah, like I said, this is this would be it for her in uh, on the comics page. Um, we talked about a novel she appeared in after that, and there was talk throughout this run of the quarterly and the special about a a TV deal. That never seemed to materialize, unfortunately. But I think there's other aspects of her legacy that I just wanted to kind of throw out there before we part. Um, One is, I was just thinking about this the other day, about uh, the exclusive club that she may be a part of. If we're talking about the time period that she was published from the 80s into the very early 90s, what other female characters had their own title, self-titled title to themselves for 50 or 60 right. issues right uh, wonder woman obviously betty and veronica <laughs> sabrina i came came with this a short list josie right uh, spider woman i think just hit 50 issues um but it's when i when i when i sat down to think about it it was it's i was a little bit surprised to see it's a, it's a short list yeah and uh you know her place in comics history despite the fact we have not seen her for 20 whatever years um it's a solid place in comics history mm-hmm. and uh how many of those others had their own theme song <laughs> <laughs> wonder woman yes <laughs> spider woman had a cartoon but uh Ms. tree had the flexi disc <laughs> included in the final issue of her uh independent run renegade press yeah the theme from Ms. tree performed by Max Helen Collins Band cruising. Did you have any of those flexi discs? That fad? I had a handful. I'm guessing from inside of cereal boxes. Does that sound possible? Yeah. But I'd buy no, that. <laughs> no recollection for from specifics. Comics. 
yeah. or, or, or what they would have been. Yeah. I debated whether to uh, yank it out of the, the comic that I found it in, but I... <laughs> it's there to be played. <laughs> it was not on YouTube. <laughs> in other words. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Everything's on YouTube. <laughs> So do you have any uh, final thoughts about uh, either this issue or the legacy of Ms. Tree? No, I'm, I'm looking forward to filling in the blanks in my collection. Good. Filling in, filling in those holes. I've, I really enjoyed overall, you know, what I, what I got from this character. Yeah. I think uh, very, from what I've read, which is almost everything, super consistent with a minor blip right. at the end here. Um, but one of the more consistent reads. And it, it it does seem like, based on, again, the handful of issues that I've read, plus, again, some of the things that are going on in, in the letters column, that Collins was not afraid to deal with issues. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the POW MIA issue, obviously, every year that goes by, you know, becomes a year further in our, in our rearview mirror. Right, yeah. You know, less of connection to that so this you know i imagine this was a type of story that he just really wanted wanted to tell yes i kind of get that sense too while it was still you know somewhat viable yep yeah and it was an interesting issue uh, Mm -hmm. an interesting topic right um just i don't know if this was the correct format (laughs) right right agreed um and and the quarterly i think in the special there there was a sort of topic of the quarter feel to those stories but with the you know with the fifty six pages it could be sort of you know, explored to some depth so yeah I like I like this title a lot so I'm I'm glad you're on board and we'll seek those things out share the That's love nothing. share the love mm. all right so I think that uh, may wrap up this episode I want to thank you so much for joining me for this inaugural mystery theater <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome glad to do it. If my uh, wife and mother want to hear more of you, where should my listeners look? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I invite all of the Sweeneys (laughs) to, uh, I am, most of my work is at Relatively Geeky, the Relatively Geeky podcast network, available in iTunes or at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And there, me and my 20-something-year-old offspring, Emily, <laughs> put out an episode every eh, seven to ten days or so with one of us or both of us talking about comic books of some kind. Great stuff. All right, it's that special time of the show called The End. So uh, let's make like a tree and get out of here. <laughs>